Welcome back to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast where I crack open the journals, read the articles, so you don't have to. It's the year 2020, and this is the first podcast for the month of January. If you are new or a long-time listener, if you like what you hear, please leave a review on iTunes. It really helps. If you have articles you'd like to submit for the podcast, please email them to info at gipearls.com or hit me up on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. And now let's go to the journals. We will start off this podcast with a review of the ASGE paper on adverse events in colonoscopy published in December of 2019 in GIE. I think the colonoscopy overall is a pretty safe procedure compared to everything else we do in medicine. It is invasive, but not terribly so. And it's important to know exactly what the rate of adverse events is if you're doing these procedures. Starting with perforation, it's the most feared complication by patients, and for good reason. The pooled rate of perforation among 10 million colonoscopies was 5.8 per 10,000, and ranges were as low as 1.6 to as high as 11.9 per 10,000 colonoscopies, depending on the population. Important to note that neither age nor gender were significantly associated with perforation rate. Truth is, if you find nothing, meaning no polypectomy, then the rates of perforation are likely much lower compared to when you do complex polypectomies with ESD, EMR kind of things, when the rates go up. Another point is that some of the perforations could be in patients with undiagnosed connective tissue diseases like Ehrlich-Danlos syndrome. I think we reviewed an article here showing that vascular EDS carries a risk of perforation as high as 9%. Also, patients with diverticulosis and IBD have higher rates of perforation. In one study, IBD patients were at 18 out of 10,000 compared to general population of 2 in 10,000. Many times it's the steroids. They raise your risk of perforation 13 times. Number of colonoscopies you do also matters. If you only do a couple hundred a year, odds of perforation are about three times higher compared to a high volume endoscopist. So keep that in mind as well. Moving on to bleeding, largest risk comes from polypectomies and specifically how you do it. Number quoted in this review based on 15 studies was 2.4 per 1,000 colonoscopies. If patient is anticoagulated, risk goes up as well for obvious reasons. There's still a debate about the size of the polyp making a difference. It would make sense that it does, larger polyp carrying larger risk, but there's still debate about it as I mentioned. Clips preventing polypectomy bleeding is also controversial. Best paper on this is probably from Heiko Pohl, showing that it probably helps in the right colon for big polypectomies. And I think I mentioned this paper before, so go back to the archives and find it if you haven't listened to it before. Now, mortality. This one is a strange one. Unweighted pooled death rate for colonoscopies has been reported at 3 per 10,000. This seems high, of course, but it is unweighted, unadjusted. If you pool all the studies together, you get a rate that seems very plausible, 3 out of 100,000. There's a bunch of other adverse events reported in this review, gas explosion being most bizarre, infections, which are rare, which is why we almost never give antibiotics preventively these days. Also, splenic injury rates are 1 to 5 out of 10,000, mostly women, 70% of them. Splenic injury is a terrible thing, of course, so maybe we should spend a few minutes talking about it. There's a scale of splenic injury based on severity, 1 through 5. Oh, and another good pearl. Ever heard of Kerr's sign? K-E-H-R, Kerr. Left shoulder pain within 24 hours of a procedure, or a few days later. 
this could be a sign of splenic injury. One case I had last year where a patient actually reported a cursed sign. Patient got a CT and the diagnosis ended up being epiploic appendagitis. Did the colonoscopy cause this? Maybe. Thankfully, you don't have to do much for this and it resolves on its own, maybe with some NSAIDs. But that's an aside. Let's go back to splenic injuries. CT is probably a good idea if you suspect splenic injury. You can get away with an ultrasound in a pinch. Treatment is based on how bad the injury is. And if patient's hemodynamically stable and doing okay, most of the time conservative management is the way to go. There are other adverse events discussed here, including sedation-related adverse events and even a section on pediatric-specific adverse events. So please go read this ASG review of adverse events in colonoscopy. Big study in December was one comparing helamryotomy versus the fancy new peroral endoscopic myotomy for patients with achalasia. This was a randomized non-inferiority trial, and they looked at efficacy and safety of POEM versus Heller plus Dorfman duplication in patients with idiopathic achalasia. This was not a blinded trial. I mean, you can't really do it blinded, but it was a prospective multi-center open-label trial and was done at eight European centers. Achalasia patients were randomly assigned to POEM versus Heller, and primary endpoint was symptoms. How did they look at that? It was the Eckert symptom score of less than three at two-year follow-up was deemed to be success. What is Eckert score, you ask? The Eckert symptom score consists of four components, dysphagia, regurgitation, chest pain, and weight loss, with each component going from zero to three points. And results are that at two-year follow-up, 83% of POEM group patients and 81% of Heller group had clinical success. So 83 versus 81%. So they're about the same. There was also no difference in high-resolution manometry of the IRP values, that is, integrated relaxation pressure of the lower sphincter. Also, there was no difference in quality of life numbers. Are there any caveats? Well, hallermyotomy had a lot more adverse events at 7.3% versus 2.7% for POEM. And POEM had much more reflux esophagitis, 44% versus 29%. So almost half of patients will end up with some sort of reflux, esophagitis, GERD symptoms. We've been waiting for this study for quite a while, ever since POEM was invented, and here it is. But I guess it's a mixed bag of data, and when I say mixed bag, I'm specifically talking about how much GERD there is with POEM, which is a lot. But at least it looks like POEM is pretty safe for echalasia, and in terms of results, it all depends on what you want. Less adverse events or less GERD symptoms. So patient selection still plays a key role here. And also, POEM is not available in many places, so sometimes you're kind of stuck. Well, this is an interesting article. Do you know what the effects of smoking marijuana is on bowel function? But if you had to take a guess, would it cause diarrhea? Would it cause constipation? We know it causes hyperemesis syndrome, but anything else? This next paper published in American Journal of Gastroenterology looked at the effects of marijuana consumption on bowel function in the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey and looked for association with bowel habit changes with consumption of marijuana. Surprise, surprise, there was less constipation in recent marijuana users compared to those who never used. Frequency of bowel movements wasn't significantly different between the groups, but still there was a big difference in terms of who complained of constipation and who didn't. Compared to never users, these people also were more likely to drink alcohol, smoke, use cocaine and heroin, and be depressed. They were also less sick and exercised more, which is very strange. So once the authors adjusted for all of this, there was still some signal left. Recent marijuana users had 30% decreased odds of constipation. 
Of course, the opposite could be true as well, where if you have constipation and if smoking marijuana were to make it worse, you might not want to smoke it anymore. So now that the latest guidelines from ACP really limit colorectal cancer screening tools to fit testing and colonoscopy, well, maybe Flexig, is there anything better that is coming in the future? How about circulating tumor DNA? It has been in vogue for about a decade. Some people call it liquid biopsy, where you actually look for tumor-specific DNA in the blood samples of patients. This next paper published in Science this month, and the question is, if colonoscopy and stool testing is too invasive, how about a blood test? I mean, the idea there is that if you go to your PCP to give blood for your cholesterol or whatnot, why not test for colon cancer too? Not a bad idea. So look for tumor-derived fragmented DNA with specific epigenetic and genetic aberrations that would correspond to cancer hiding somewhere, maybe even colon. The most famous methylation marker in colon cancer screening so far is SEPT9 gene, which has been suggested to be used as a biomarker of colon cancer. Here things are a little different since you're looking for cell-free circulating DNA methylation profiles, and you could potentially use these for diagnosis and surveillance of colon cancer. And this study was done in the Chinese cohort of patients who had colon cancer versus healthy controls. And then once the model was built based on the Cancer Genome Atlas tumor sample methylation profiles, then the model was used to look prospectively at 16,000 healthy patients and about 1,400 patients who deemed to be at high risk of colon cancer. They don't really define in the actual paper what high risk of colon cancer is. I assume first degree relatives with colon cancer or something like that. So in the end, the area under the curve for accuracy of distinguishing colon cancer versus normal was 0.96. That's pretty remarkable. Prognostic prediction model that they built was also highly accurate for predicting prognosis and survival of patients with colon cancer diagnosis. They also found a specific methylation marker that had 90% sensitivity and 87% specificity for detection of colon cancer and precancerous lesions in high-risk population in their prospective cohort study looks promising. Once again, it's unclear how to define this high-risk population, as this specific methylation marker seems not that great of value for average-risk patients, but it looks like we could one day have a blood test for early cancer. My guess it would be helpful for those who would absolutely refuse a colonoscopy, which is not that many people. I'm a bit all over the place in terms of where these papers came out, but usually it's in the past one or two months. And some of the confusion comes from the fact that some of these journals arrive in my mail, towards the end of the month and some towards the beginning of the month. For some reason, the Red Journal always arrives two weeks late, like I received the January issue of the Red Journal just about today, and it's I'm recording this on the 23rd of January. Speaking of Red Journals, this next paper comes from Mark Pimentel's group out of California and published in December issue in the Red Journal or the Journal of American gastroenterology, and it looked at how predictive is a positive lactulose breath test when you assess for treatment with rifaximin of patients with IBS diarrhea subtype. Just a little reminder that we don't have a perfect theory of how we get irritable bowel syndrome diarrhea subtype, and when it comes to treatments, we don't exactly know what rifaximin is doing in terms of its mechanism. So now that you have your blinders on, let's forge on. At the end of the day, some patients do benefit from rifaximin, and the key is identifying patients that might get better. One very crude tool we have is the lactulose breath test. And how good is it in predicting response to rifaximin? Practically speaking, that's what we're doing anyway. This was a subgroup analysis of a larger study, so take it with a grain of salt. And they looked at about 90 patients, about two-thirds had a positive lactulose breath test, and a third not. And then they looked at who responded to rifaximin. About 60% of patients who responded had a positive breath test, 
and only about 25% of those who responded had a negative breath test. And then they did something interesting and saw what happens to lactulose breath test result after treatment. Turns out that if your lactulose breath test result normalized, this was a group of patients with the highest response rate to rifaximin, about 76.5%. Two things need to be mentioned here. Taking rifaximin doesn't change your microbiome to a great degree, but it seems to be doing something. And the second thing is that only about 30% of patients who took rifaximin for two weeks had a long-term benefit, meaning like two or three months later. Overall, once again, it's a mixed bag. Yes, if your SIBO test is positive, then you're more likely to respond to rifaximin, especially if your SIBO test normalizes afterwards. But the numbers are just not clean enough and response is not guaranteed. So there is a signal there, but there's too much noise to make any definitive conclusions to fundamentally change our practice in one direction or another, which explains why there's such a great variation of practice and some GI docs think that SIBO is nonsense and there are others who swear by it and they test everybody for SIBO. Speaking of IBS, one of the best theories of origin of IBS in some people is post-infectious IBS, which makes some physiological and mechanistic sense. So how often does that happen? This next paper from the Red Journal again, October issue, looked at the large commercial database of claims and encounters, looking over at five years of data of confirmed Campylobacter infection diagnoses, and then looking how many folks get IBS diagnosis sometime after that happens. And this is just a crude estimate, but their numbers show that your risk is 5.6 times higher once you get Campylobacter infection compared to controls. Nothing new here, but still interesting. I think this helps us build an explanation of post-infection IBS that we can share with patients. This next one will be also very short. Oral curcumin is no more effective than placebo in preventing recurrence of Crohn's disease in a randomized trial out of France. This was a multi-center randomized double-blind study of 3 grams of oral curcumin a day versus placebo for 6 months. Patients were otherwise on azathioprine as well at 2.5 mg per kilogram. And no surprise, there was no difference in recurrence in two groups. study was discontinued after interim analysis due to futility. This is a reminder that supplements and herbals get a free pass when it comes to testing efficacy because no one bothers to come up with a good mechanism of action. And a reminder that curcumin oral bioavailability is zero. And multiple studies show that. I've talked about this on the podcast before, so if you haven't heard this, go listen to old episodes. So if your patient is taking curcumin, read this study and then share it with your patients and save them some money. Sometimes reading articles is pretty tedious, but one of the most enjoyable things I read is the point-counterpoint section in the Red Journal. One of the better point-counterpoints in a while was the discussion on the need to treat for H. pylori in December issue. Let's start off with the arguments not to treat H. pylori, some of which were very surprising to me, and I learned a lot from reading this. The argument, of course, centers around asymptomatic patients with no peptic ulcer disease or high-risk features for gastric cancer, like family history or something like that. Argument one, there is no difference in mortality for patients with H. pylori compared to those without. Treating H. pylori may not prevent gastric cancer in general population, and on top of that, H. pylori infection may reduce the risk of esophageal cancer by as much as 79%. So why treat it, especially in the United States, where incidence of gastric cancer is low and esophageal cancer incidence is on the rise? Then the treatment itself poses risks, one of which is the risk of MI going up as much as threefold when you use clarithromycin-based therapy. Just so you know, in the United States, you're not really supposed to use clarithromycin-based therapy to treat H. pylori anymore, since FDA issued a warning against use of clarithromycin in patients with heart disease. 
So instead of a universal treatment for H. pylori, these authors argue for a more individualized approach based on risks. The counterpoint arguing for treatment reframes the debate, stating that you should think about treatment not when someone is positive, but before testing for H. pylori, and only test when necessary, which is a high threshold, I think. Firstly, all guidelines currently say that if you have found H. pylori, you're kind of obligated to treat it. And I think most gastroenterologists and primary care docs in the United States treat H. pylori indiscriminately. Secondly, and by the way, these statements come directly from Bill Che, who was one of the people behind the published H. pylori guidelines a while back. I think it was the beginning of 2017. Secondly, treating H. pylori does get rid of most gastric cancers that we are diagnosing, meaning multomas, at least in the United States. So in the end, it is clear that screening for H. pylori in asymptomatic patients is not the way to go. And if your patient has ulcers and gastric cancer, testing and treating for H. pylori is a no-brainer. Question I have for everyone is, do you really bring up the fact that treating H. pylori in the absence of ulcers or cancer probably doesn't change mortality equation and may not have a large impact on symptoms of something like GERD and may increase risk of esophageal cancer and not to mention antibiotic-associated risks? And if you don't discuss these, are you going to now? So write to me at info.gipearls.com or on Twitter and let's talk about this. All right, one more paper from the Red Journal, and then we'll move on to others. IBD and C. diff infections often go together, and recurrent C. diff infections in patients with IBD is a big problem. I hope you don't treat your IBD patients with flagell and use vancomycin instead. And how long do you treat? There were some docs who always treated their IBD patients with prolonged course of vancomycin, meaning not just two weeks, but more likely like four or five weeks. Is that crazy? Maybe not. And this next paper from David Rubin's group out of the University of Chicago shows that it's probably a good idea. They looked at over 130 patients with IBD and compared recurrence rates after short versus long duration of vancomycin therapy. Both recurrence and reinfection rates were way lower, and recurrence rates were way, way down from almost 14% for short duration down to 1.72% for long duration. One caveat here is that this wasn't a prospective trial, it was a retrospective chart review. But still, results are pretty impressive. The authors are very careful not to just recommend long-duration therapy for everyone, you know, since we don't want to breed VRE for no reason, and waste money, of course. And they did a very good job of describing all of this in the discussion. I am sure that randomized trial is just around the corner. I am sure you have patients with celiac disease who swear that they are not eating any gluten, but their TTG is high and they keep having symptoms. Symptoms of gluten exposure tend to be very nonspecific in most patients, but can we identify and quantify which ones are the most specific symptoms of gluten exposure? Turns out someone did a study. Well, sort of. There was a trial of new immunotherapy for celiac disease, and it was a failed trial, but many things can be learned from failed trials, including this. Basically, these gluten-free celiac disease patients were challenged with gluten over and over again. And since FODMAPs can give you some of the same symptoms in some patients, the control was low FODMAPs. Turns out that nausea and vomiting were relatively specific indicators of acute gluten exposure. And other IBS-like symptoms were not. So compared to other symptoms like headache, bloating, diarrhea, or some other symptoms, nausea was clearly the symptom that was most specific for gluten versus no gluten. And that's on the day of gluten exposure, not like a week later or anything like that. This happens like within hours of being exposed to gluten, apparently. The authors also report that interleukin-2 measurements may be even more specific, but hey, 
but I guess you can't really chase blood tests in a situation where a patient is chasing minute amounts of gluten in their diets while trying to eliminate them. Maybe we can ask our patients, did you have nausea any day recently? And if the answer is yes, maybe this will trigger a recall of a certain food, and maybe this can help patients stay gluten-free. Who knows? Very interesting study. The fact that post-colonoscopy colorectal cancer is more likely to arise in the right colon is well known, but the difference is not very large. It is real, though. Why? Is it because we're more likely to miss polyps during colonoscopy, or are the cancers themselves different, maybe faster growing? The answer is probably both, but what makes these cancers unique, if anything? The next paper published in CGH looked to see if there are any features of these types of dreaded cancers that make them unique. Meaning, can we blame biology instead of the endoscopist? They looked at the CRC cases in the large Utah database and looked for cancers that arose within five years of colonoscopy. Then they looked at tumor location, molecular profiles, etc. About 6% of colon cancers were deemed to be post-colonoscopy colon cancers. Of these 6%, they had a few tissue blocks available to do some matching to controls, and they had about 84 cases of such, which is pretty nice. Post-colonoscopy tumors had more microsatellite instability, 32% versus 13%, more right-sided colon cancers, which is already known, but these were of earlier stage, so I guess there is some evidence that these types of cancers may be different slightly from your average colon cancer in terms of their biology. So I saved the best for last. I hear the voices of the practicing gastroenterologists crying out in the darkness of the endoscopy suite. What do they cry out for? They all want semethicone back. Please bring back us semethicone. Increase our ADRs. Help us find those polyps. Regular listeners will remember my obsession with semethicone and how upset I get whenever anyone thinks that semethicone causes infections and unproven fake news that has taken endoscopy world over, specifically after the duodenoscope disaster that affected many of us. I have some good news to report, mainly that the entire continent on this planet decided to say, enough, let us have our semethicone back. I speak, of course, about Australia, which does many things right, unlike other places in the world, I suppose. So my head is off to you, the Gastroenterology Society of Australia, for publishing your position statement on the use of semethicone. I will summarize the important points here. 1. Continued use of semethicone is considered reasonable as it improves mucosal inspection during endoscopy and likely helps increase adenoma detection rate. 2. Try to use smallest amount possible. They suggest 2 to 3 mils per liter of water. Most people use just a few drops and considering that the volume of a drop is, I don't know, 60 microliters or so, I don't think we're even close to that limit, so I think it's all good. 3. You can give semethicone by mouth if you want, or through any, I repeat, any endoscope irrigating channel. 4. And this one should go without saying, keep up with reprocessing protocols and don't skip steps. Decom protocols on cleaning endoscopes prior to reprocessing are key to infection control. It's not the semethicone, silly. And the final thing I want to say is, right in the abstract, I quote, There are no published reports of adverse events related specifically to the use of semethicone delivered either orally or via any endoscope channel. That is all. Amazing. So if your facility bans semethicone, perhaps it's time to revisit that issue. Thanks again for listening to GI Pearls, the gastroenterology and hepatology literature review podcast. This was episode 38 for the month of January 2020. For show notes and list of articles that we've discussed, including links, go to gipearls.com. Also follow me on Twitter at gi underscore pearls. 
And don't forget to leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again. Bye-bye.